unrelated things. Greetings and welcome to episode number six of Unrelated Things. Episode number six is being recorded on the road as I am traveling for a work-related project. If this is your first episode, I hope you enjoyed enough to go back and take a listen to episodes one through five. If you've been along for the ride from the beginning, thank you very much for coming back for more Unrelated Things. I don't have any sponsors yet. If I had one, I would probably have something very important to say here. So in lieu of a sponsor this week, here is another quote that I found online. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Ralph Waldo Emerson. You can make a donation or find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the formulation and fomentation. My top pick this week is an iOS app that I've been using for a couple years now. It's a great app that I use to save and store all of my receipts when I travel, so it's very appropriate as I'm traveling this week that this is my top pick. The app is called Genius Scan, and here is the description from the App Store. Genius Scan turns your iPhone into a pocket scanner. It enables you to quickly scan documents on the go and email the scans as JPEG or PDF. The Genius Scanner technology includes smart page detection, perspective correction, image post-processing. It allows you to build PDF documents with multiple scans. And here's a list of the key features of Genius Scan. It detects the page frame and corrects perspective. It enhances the scan with color or black and white post-processing. Emails the scans as JPEG. Creates PDF documents with multiple scans. It emails the PDF documents. It can export your documents to iBooks or any app able to read PDF files. You can share scans to Twitter. And there is an Genius Scan is free, but there is an elevated version called Genius Scan Plus. I do not have Genius Scan Plus. The functionality of Genius Scan is everything that I need. Uh, but with Genius Scan Plus, you can export documents to Box, Dropbox, Evernote, or Google Docs. You can print with AirPrint, and you can send receipts to Expensify. Documents all are processed on the phone, not sent to a third-party server. So everything happens right on the phone itself. And the updated Genius Scan yesterday and finally came out with a native iPad version as well. So Genius Scan's been a fantastic app for me. I use it to scan business cards. I use it to scan all my receipts. And any document that I need to send and I only have in paper form, it's very, very easy to use a camera on my phone with Genius Scan to snap a picture of that and send that as a PDF file. So I highly recommend Genius Scan. It's been extremely useful for me. 
Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. So here in the shallow end of the news, we have some of the lighter weight stories from the week. Uh, Salon.com published a story by Kyle Kim, and that story's title is 71 Names So Awful, New Zealand Had to Ban Them. Some New Zealand parents were getting so creative devising unique names for their newborns that the country's Department of Internal Affairs has stepped in to stop the shenanigans. New Zealand released an official list of rejected names on Wednesday that includes For Real, with the number four, Mafia No Fear, and Anal. Other gems, like period, no, not the word period, the actual punctuation mark, period, or asterisk, again, punctuation mark, didn't even bother with the alphabet. All of the names on the list were at some point proposed by parents, soon to be rejected by the government, which deemed the names too offensive. In New Zealand, there is a department of the government which approves names officially in order to prevent an inordinate inordinate amount of creativity in naming. Among the names that are routinely rejected are names that imply a specific title, like prince or duke or majesty. The number one rejected name was justice, proposed 62 times. King was number two, proposed 31 times. Princess was proposed 28 times. Prince, 27 times. And royal, 25 times. So those were the top five rejected names in New Zealand. And as you go down the list, there were a lot of names that were only proposed once and were rejected. Some of the more interesting ones include Roman numerals three. Yes, the entire phrase, Roman numerals three. 89, the number. Again, for real, as indicated in the previous part of the story. Mr. M-R. V8. And president was proposed and rejected by one parent. So you can see the whole list of 71 rejected names at salon.com. Let's just look for that story. 71 names so awful, New Zealand had to ban them. This happened. In a story on TNT Down Under by Hugh Radajev, authorities have hypothesized that a dog's metal drinking bowl refracted a concentrated beam of sunlight onto a wall of a home, catching it on fire. It's a good thing we got to it in time because there's a pretty good-sized hole burned in the siding, Terry Weisbrick told Santa Rosa's Press Democrat. A a flabbergasted Bennett Valley Fire Department engineer, Rene Torres, was stumped by the cause of the fire until he noticed a slightly charred dog bowl kicked aside in the rush to extinguish the flames. It was uncanny, Torres said. In an instant, he said there was a dot of concentrated light right in the exact area 
of the charred siding. So be careful if you have a dog bowl that will simulate a magnifying glass aimed at the side of your house. Could be a hazard. And another thing. A story by Laura Northrup of Consumers.com talks about the store Hobby Lobby and their reaction to a shoplifter. A Texas woman might be a little absent-minded or beginning to suffer from dementia, but says that she didn't mean to walk out of a craft store with a handful of embroidered iron-on letters. Unfortunately, she was shopping at Hobby Lobby, a chain whose management takes loss prevention almost as seriously as their Christian faith. The store wants the customer and her daughter to pay more than $1,000 in fines and civil penalties for the theft. We get it. Everyone who gets caught shoplifting says that it was an accident. Oh, loss prevention officer, I got distracted and I didn't realize I was walking out with a chainsaw. I really meant to buy this 43-inch TV that I hid under my skirt, etc. But this particular woman explains that the tiny letters that she had selected kept falling out of her cart, so she set them on top of her purse. They fell inside her purse. That's when Hobby Lobby intercepted her at the door. So it's definitely suspicious activity. But here comes the reaction part. A local TV station reports the store had the 72-year-old arrested. She pled no contest to misdemeanor theft and paid a $260 fee. She got three months probation. Surely that was enough for walking out of the store with four letters worth $1.49 each, right? No. Hobby Lobby then started sending her daughter, who took her on the fateful shopping trip, letters seeking civil damages and threatening a lawsuit. The last letter demanded $750, an amount that would buy 503 of the iron-on letters in question. So I think that this particular individual has you know, pled no contest to the theft, paid a $260 fee. I think she has made amends for the level of this potential theft, which was, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of $10 or $12. Uh, I think that Hobby Lobby should back off and focus their efforts on others at this point. Sometimes stuff happens. And one of those things that's happening is happening uh, down in Brazil. In Brazil, there is a nonprofit organization whose name I will now massacre. It's the Associal de Assistencia às Pessoas com Cancer. Sorry for anybody who speaks the language. That, that organization, an anti-cancer organization, has a mascot. The mascot is named Mr. Balls, and he works to raise awareness about testicular cancer. According to the AAPC website, and courtesy of some Google translating, quote, both children and adults love taking pictures with the mascot, a friendly snowman in the shape of a testicle. And there are pictures of the mascot online. And I'm not sure exactly why they call uh, Mr. Balls 
a snowman. Mr. Balls doesn't resemble a snowman very much, but absolutely resembles testicles. Uh, Mr. Balls is complete with um, flesh tone and curly hair and a smiling face. Um, and there are images online of Mr. Balls having fun, walking in, in down the street, almost in a parade-like atmosphere, accompanied by children. Um, kudos to this organization for taking cancer seriously and for approaching it in an approachable way. So if you're down there in Brazil, you know, don't be surprised if you may one day run into Mr. Balls. Australian truck driver Bill Morgan's extraordinary string of luck began when he was crushed in a truck accident and suffered a fatal heart attack. Maybe, maybe his extraordinary luck began a little after that. But so, so goes the story from Melbourne, Australia. Clinically dead for more than 14 minutes, Morgan was revived after 12 days in a coma, during which time his family was advised to unplug life support. He awoke with all of his facilities intact. A year after his heart stopped, he proposed to his girlfriend, and she said yes. And then two weeks ago, he bought a scratch-off lottery ticket, and he won a car worth $17,000. When the news of that got out, the, the local news station um, was so impressed with his story that they decided to run a, a, a story on Mr. Morgan. And as part of that story, they wanted to show him scratching off a lottery ticket. So they had him reenact the scratching off the ticket. And as the cameras rolled and he scratched off that ticket, he won $170,000 on that particular scratch ticket. So the... In fact, it, it appears that it wasn't actually him. It was his his wife-to-be, Lisa Wells, who scratched that ticket as part of that story reenactment. Um, so she won the jackpot of $170,000. So a uh, serious accident that he survived turned into some really good luck, talked by even more good luck. So, you know, just because something bad happens to you, there, there could be a bright spot around the corner. Well, let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. Hold on tight. We're headed for the deep end. On to the deep end of the news. A little story on consumerist.com by Chris Moran. Tired of seeing people who assume they've done their part to combat childhood hunger, disease, and famine by simply passing along images of strife and poverty to Facebook friends, the folks at UNICEF Sweden have created an ad campaign that blatantly call out such slacktivism. Quote, like us on Facebook and we will vaccinate zero children against polio, reads one poster which goes on to explain that Facebook likes are all well and good, but they don't pay for the vaccines that will actually save the lives of kids. 
quote, We like likes and social media could be a good first step to get involved, but it cannot stop there, the UNICEF Sweden Director of Communications told The Atlantic. Likes don't save children's lives. We need money to buy vaccines, for instance. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, awareness raising campaigns online, and and they do a really really good job of raising awareness. But you know, and where the while there might be some really effective click to donate, uh, because someone is on the other end of those clicks making actual donations. Be aware that just liking something on Facebook or just clicking that mouse button may not be going very far to support the, the cause that you believe in. Let's get deeper into the conversation. In a story in the New York Times by Tara Parker Pope, suicide rates among middle-aged Americans have risen sharply in the past decade, prompting concern that a generation of baby boomers who have faced years of economic worry and easy access to prescription painkillers may be particularly vulnerable to self-inflicted harm. More people now die of suicide than in car accidents, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which published the findings in a recent issue of its Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. In 2010, there were 33,687 deaths from motor vehicle crashes and 38,364 suicides. Suicide has typically been viewed as a problem of teenagers and the elderly, and the surge in suicide rates among middle-aged Americans is surprising. From 1999 to 2010, the suicide rate among Americans aged 35 to 64 rose by nearly 30% to 17.6 deaths per 100,000 people, up from 13.7. Although suicide rates are growing among both middle-aged men and women, far more men take their own lives. The suicide rate for middle-aged men was 27.3 deaths per 100,000, while for women it was 8.1. The most pronounced increases were seen among men in their 50s, a group in which suicide rates jumped by nearly 50% to about 30 per 100,000. For women, the largest increase was seen in those aged 60 to 64, among whom rates increased by nearly 60% to seven per 100,000. Suicide rates can be difficult to interpret because of variations in the way local officials report causes of death. While reporting suicides is not consistent around the country, the current numbers are, if anything, too low. Not that the numbers are too low. The reporting of the numbers is on the low side. So when the numbers get reported as 17.6 deaths per 100,000 people, chances are their actual numbers are higher than that because of anomalies in reporting. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. A story that just happened a couple days ago, and this particular uh, connection to the story that I'm going to refer to um, came in part from Nidorama.com. There is a fantastic video of a gentleman who rescued some women's, women in Ohio from captivity, 
and gave a extremely frank uh, interview to a local TV reporter. So I absolutely highly recommend you check out YouTube and look for Charles Ramsey. And this the title of this story is Charles Ramsey Explains What Happened in Cleveland. The good news is that three women who have been missing for a decade were found in a house in Cleveland. Amanda Berry, Gina De Jesus, and Michelle Knight all went missing in separate incidents when they were teenagers. Amanda Berry took advantage of a broken door and called to neighbor Charles Ramsey, who helped her escape. Police later found the other two women in the house. Three brothers in their 50s have been arrested. The three women and a child, thought to be the daughter of Amanda Berry, um, were taken to a local hospital and have been shielded from the media. But Charles Ramsey tells his story of Amanda Berry's moment of freedom. And he tells it well. So go and check out uh, Mr. Ramsey's very frank description of how he was alerted by Amanda Berry and helped break down a door to help her escape. And then how they reached out to 911 and um, brought in the police to help rescue the other two women. Uh, his his story will be, if it is not already, and it probably already is, all over the internet in no time because of his outstanding interview. That has nothing to do with this story. I'm giving you information that you're going to think is important, but it's not at all. TheAtlanticWire.com printed a story by Dashiel Bennett titled, Iraq just had its deadliest month in five years. American troops may have finally left Iraq, but for that nation's citizens, the war is not only getting, the war is only getting worse. More than 700 people, mostly civilians, were killed in violent attacks last month, making it the deadliest calendar month since June 2008. Nearly all of those killed were attacked in the capital of Baghdad. The sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia Muslims has escalated in recent months, and the minority Sunnis have turned up the protests of the Shia-led government, leading to violent confrontations with the police. Local elections in the middle of April contributed to the violence as deadly car bombings became almost routine in Iraq's major cities, and the government has been powerless to stop the resurgence of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is believed to be behind the majority of attacks. The sudden spike in attacks has also raised fears of a new civil war, as sectarian groups lacking the buffer of American forces turn their anger and frustration against each other. The Sunnis, who dominated government positions for so many years, have been marginalized on the government of Shia Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki, which has led and contributed to some of the tensions. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. Shifting gears to a little lighter story in the deep end of the news. Um, Humansinvent.com published a story of some unexpected inventors. Margaret Thatcher, who recently passed away, 
invented soft scoop ice cream. Before entering the world of politics, Margaret graduated from Oxford University with a degree in chemistry, and she went to work for J.R. Lyons, who, amongst other things, made ice cream. As part of a team of three, she was given the responsibility to formulate an ice cream that could be pumped through tubes so it could be dispensed more quickly. So Margaret Thatcher, as part of that team, helped invent soft serve ice cream. Who else had uh, crazy inventions? Um, Charlie Sheen has invented a whole range of products. He launched his own children's fashion label called Sheen Kids. Marlon Brando had a penchant for bongo drums, and he invented an innovative drum tuner. And Abraham Lincoln patented an inflatable skirt for ships that, in the event they ran aground, could be inflated to release them from underwater obstacles. So a whole variety of unusual inventors out there on that particular site. And not to leave the, uh, the storyline of inventions, um, techdirt.com published a story by Mike Masnick. And that story is called Over 90% of the Most Innovative Products from the Past Few Decades Were Not Patented. There's a, a ton of patent stories and patent lawsuits out there. So this really was was very enlightening story on tech dirt. We've pointed out over and over and over again that patents are not a proxy for innovation. In fact, there is little to connect the two at all, except potentially for how patents can hinder and hold back the pace of innovation. A new study really helps to drive home how little patents have to do with innovation. Pointed, us to, pointed out to us by James Besson, the study looks at R&D 100 awards, which is our, the name of an award, that's in quotes, R&D 100 awards, from the academic journal Research and Development from 1977 to 2004. As you might expect, the R&D 100 awards are given out each year by the journal in an attempt to name the top 100 innovations of the year. If patents were instrumental in driving innovation, you'd certainly expect most of these innovations to be patented. But you'd be wrong. As the report's authors, Roberto Fontana, Alessandro Nuvolari, Hiroshi Shimizu, and Andrea Vizzuli quickly discovered. A stunning 91% of all the technologies receiving the prize were not actually patented. That's covering approximately 3,000 technologies winning this award as the most innovative advancement of the year over a period of about three decades. What's interesting to me is that this actually matches very closely with one of my favorite studies on patents from economist Petra Mosier, who looked at historical patenting rates from the 19th century using data on products displayed at the Crystal Palace exhibit of 1851 and the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia in 1876, which again showed very few of the economically useful inventions were patented. Over 80% of those were not patented. Of course, you might think that back in the 1800s, there was less interest in patenting, but this new study suggests a rather similar rate to what Mosier found from 150 years ago. 
So really interesting study and story about patents and patenting and the need for patents in the creation of innovative products. And many, many items are patented. Um, many techniques are patented. But among the winners of this prize uh, over the last three decades, the vastly overwhelming majority of those innovative products were not patented products. Spoiler! This is the worst radio ever. Oh, come on. It's not the worst radio ever. Hopefully it's pretty good. So on to the movies. And there was an interesting little story on BuzzFeed called 20 Famous Movie Lines That You've Been Saying Wrong. And a few of these stood out to me because while, while some of them are, are slight variations on what the common, common usage and incorrect usage is, some of them were a little bit more pronounced. So um, from, I think, uh, I can't Apollo 13 maybe was it Apollo 13 Apollo 12 you know that one with Tom Hanks in it whatever number that Apollo was um, the common misquote is Houston we have a problem the actual line uh, Houston we've had a problem so a minor variation on that particular one from Dirty Harry the common misquote is do you feel lucky punk but the actual line in the movie was, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? From Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the common misquote is, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? But the actual movie line was, magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? I think probably the most well-known, most misquoted line is from Casablanca and is played again, Sam. But the actual line in the movie is, you played it for her, you can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. Never mentioning Sam in the particular quote. And from The Empire Strikes Back, often misquoted, is Darth Vader saying, Luke, I am your father. Unless the director went back and re-edited it, which isn't out of the question, uh, the actual movie quote by Darth Vader was, no, I am your father. So there's a few of the misquotes from this particular story, things you think you know, but you may not. On to some music news. Woody Guthrie's Great American Voice gets a new home in Tulsa. And this is from KansasCity.com, story by Steve Paul. The woman in the wheelchair and headphones is watching pictures go by and hearing a narrator speak about a place and a moment long ago. On the screen, a typewritten love letter appears, and the words scroll down, and you can imagine the woman when she first laid eyes on those words. It was 80 years ago, 
in Pampa, Texas, when Mary Jennings, then 16, succumbed to the sweet words and married Woody Guthrie. Here she was, reliving the memory. Behind her was her daughter from a later marriage, Ann Jennings, who wiped away tears. And on the woman's right side watching the screen was Nora Guthrie, daughter of Woody Guthrie and his second wife, and a driving force of the Woody Guthrie Center, which opened recently in Tulsa. The center, an archive and interactive museum, is devoted to the legacy of a singer, songwriter, artist, and novelist whose place in the firmament of great American voices now grows even brighter. Will this be here forever, Mary Jennings? Now Mary Boyle asked. Yes, indeed it will, Nora Guthrie assured her. To listen to contemporary singer-songwriters, all roads lead to Guthrie. To listen to Nora Guthrie, the road from here extends in all directions. Born in Okima, Oklahoma, Woodrow Wilson Guthrie would have turned 100 in 2012. In a series of his celebratory events, concerts, and publications put a spotlight on him and his work. Earlier this year, a newly discovered novel, House of Earth, found in archives at the University of Tulsa, came out to much acclaim and a rash of raised eyebrows, given its combination of populist worldview, poetic prose, and graphically frank sexual con content. And now the Woody Guthrie Center focuses his story more than ever before. The center's opening came amid a weekend of activities, including an afternoon of music and a blended family reunion of Guthrie relatives from East, West, and Inland coasts. The center includes interactive stations where visitors can learn about Guthrie's cross-country travels and the stages of his life, from the hard scrabble and dusty years in Oklahoma and Texas to his arrival in New York, a stint in the Merchant Marines during World War II, and his long and sad decline as Huntington's disease, a nerve disorder, ravaged his body and his life. After 15 years living with a disease, which at the time had no cure or treatment, Guthrie died in 1967 at age 55. Because TV is so good. It's a TV thing. And my only TV thing this week is also my Eureka Minute just announced today, former Eureka star Colin Ferguson is back at Sci-Fi. He will be joining the upcoming fourth season of the network's drama Haven for a season-long arc. On the show, based on Stephen King's novella The Colorado Kid, Ferguson will play William, a handsome, mysterious stranger whose secret agenda leads him to FBI agent-turned-cop in the small town of Haven, Maine Audrey Parker played by Emily Rose. Season four of Haven, which starts production today in Halifax, Nova Scotia, picks up six months after the devastating events of the season three cliffhanger in which the town was pummeled by a violent meteor storm. Ferguson starred in Eureka for its five season run, playing the lovable Sheriff Jack Carter, and also served as a producer on the series, in addition to directing multiple episodes. So, fantastic news to see Colin Ferguson back in a series on sci-fi. Um, I've heard things about Haven. I've seen, I think, exactly 
one episode of Haven. It's not a series that I have seen enough of to get hooked on, but I have a feeling before season four of Haven comes out that I will be pursuing seasons one through three on Netflix or iTunes or wherever I may find them. So outstanding to see Colin Ferguson, who, in my opinion, was brilliant uh, on the show Eureka, um, star in or co-star in a ongoing series on the Sci-Fi Network. So a couple stories about Apple this week. The latest data from Comscore indicates the iPhone's share of the U.S. smartphone market is growing and is now inching very close to 40%. For the period covering the first three months of 2013, Comscore's data shows that the iPhone's share of the U.S. smartphone market checked in at 39%, representing a mild gain from the period ending December 2012, when the iPhone accounted for 36.3% of the U.S. smartphone market. Coming in second place in the U.S. smartphone market was Samsung, with 21.7%, seeing a moderate lift of 0.7% from the previous results. Those were the only two of the top five phone manufacturers, smartphone manufacturers in the U.S., that actually gained some share of the market. But when you turn around and look at platform share, Apple takes a backseat to the Android operating system, which accounted for 52% of the U.S. smartphone market during quarter one of 2013. But overall, Apple's platform share went up by 2.7 percentage points, while Google's Android platform share lost 1.4% percentage points. And Apple was the only one of the top five manufacturers to see any kind of moderate gain. The only other um, of the top five manufacturers of the smartphone platforms, which include Google with Android, Apple, BlackBerry, Microsoft, and Symbian. The only other one of those who saw any gain at all was Microsoft, who went from a share of 2.9% to a share of 3% during that period. And my second and for this week final Apple story is a rumor about the iPad mini and a rumored update that is coming for the iPad mini. NPD Display Search is on a roll after reporting yesterday that Apple could release two Retina-enabled iPad mini models, one in the second half of this year and another in the first quarter of 2014 with an updated processor. The display market researchers tell CNET that they think those high-resolution Retina panels for the second-generation iPad mini could go into mass production soon, as early as June or July of this year. If true, and assuming satisfactory yield rates, Apple should be able to be ready. Apple should be able to ready its first Retina iPad Mini for a fall introduction. A time frame KGI Securities well-informed analyst Ming-Chi Kuo 
recently outlined based on his own sources. So over the last several months or maybe year or so, Apple has been moving away from Samsung for parts orders, partly related to its patent infringement cases that it's been up against Samsung over. According to the supply chain chatter, the iPhone maker is widely believed to be putting the last nail in the proverbial Samsung supplier relationship coffin by commissioning Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the world's largest independent semiconductor foundry, to manufacture the next generation processors for iOS devices. Processors for iPhones and iPads have consistently and for a long time been manufactured by Samsung. So as part of a shift away from Samsung as a supplier, Apple is apparently commissioning Taiwan Semiconductor to manufacture its processors for iOS devices. And Apple has designed those processors for a very long time, but just has not manufactured them themselves. They have always hired companies, typically Samsung, to manufacture those processors. Oh boy, howdy. I think you just nailed it. While you drag them down. While you drag them down is appropriate for my tweet of the week because my tweet of the week is in response to the internet trolls and the internet bullies that like to make comments largely because they're anonymous and drag people down. So there is a gentleman named Mikey Newman, who I don't know particularly well, but who is a friend of, of Will Wheaton, and Will Wheaton wrote a little story about him saying this at the beginning of the story, my friend Mikey is a brilliant writer, one of the kindest humans I've ever known. The Lord of Chile, the voice of Scooter, and just an amazing person. My life is better because he is in it. And I want teleporters right now so I can see him every day since we live in different states. So yesterday, when Mikey was getting attacked and hurt by strangers who would in all likelihood never speak out loud the words they typed on their keyboards, a bunch of us who loved him rallied to his side and supported him. People like Felicia Day, Veronica Belmont, Max Temkin, Anthony Carboni, and I reminded Mikey how much we love him and how incredible he is and how worthless the internet hate machine actually is. So as part of this story written by Will Wheaton, this tweet was included. And I think anyone who gets trolled on the internet and, and is targeted with hateful comments should keep this in mind. And this is a tweet by Joel Watson, who on Twitter is at hijinks and Sue. Quote, at Mikey Face, which is Mikey Newman's Twitter handle. Quote, at Mikey Face, you make games and comic books. They make comments. Okay, let's go ahead and move on. Two stories in the crowdfunding sector today. 
And I'll start with this one. This is written by Cory Doctorow at boingboing.net. Drone Shield is an Indiegogo project from a DC aerospace engineer that aims to build a tiny net-connected drone detector slash identifier. Based on a Raspberry Pi gumstick computer, it uses a mic to detect the audio signature of nearby drones and then communicates about its findings over the internet. The project promises free open hardware and software specs. The fully assembled drone detector costs at least $69 as a pre-order. As with all crowdfunded projects, it's important to remember that you may never get your device. And that was in, in parentheses in the story. The project goal is to get them down to $20 each. And Drone Shield has currently raised $7,300, more than double its original goal of $3,500. So if one of those parts of its goal was to reduce that price down to $20, I think they have, since they have already doubled their goal in, in donations collected, it is highly likely that the price gets reduced. I don't know if this will work. I don't know when this will will be produced, if it in fact will. As with any crowd-funded project, it is up to the project management team to actually make it work. And for some teams, they find that is a more daunting task than they expected. But really interesting in the time where drones are used more and more frequently overseas and where they may be used here as well uh, for surveillance. Um, interesting that someone is designing a project to detect and identify drones. Good timing on that. And Kickstarter. Uh, this is a story written by Andy Anatko and published on chicagogrid.com. Add songwriter Jonathan Colton and author Greg Pack to the growing list of Kickstarter creative success stories. Code Monkey Save the World, a comic book based on characters and scenes found in some of the independent folk rock gods' most popular songs, went live on Kickstarter three weeks ago and quickly blew past not only its original $39,000 goal, but all of its successive stretch goals. After such an outstanding start, the pair announced a new $250,000 stretch goal, and I just looked before I started this podcast, and they have surpassed that stretch goal as well. The payoff for the $250,000 goal is a whole new children's book. This one is based on, quote, The Princess Who Saved Herself, a track Colton composed for a Haitian Relief charity album. Colton says he wrote the song, quote, because my daughter is obsessed with princesses, so I am forced to think and talk about them a lot. None of them really kick ass as much as I hope my daughter kicks ass when she's all grown up. So I made one that does. If Code Monkey Saved the World reaches its new $250,000 goal, which in fact it has, the Princess Who Saved Herself comic will be a free download to everyone who pledged at the $15 level or higher. 
So another big success by someone who is pretty well known, um, especially online, um, for a Kickstarter project. One of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. So that is all I have this week. That will wrap up episode number six. Thank you very much for listening to episode six of Unrelated Things. I hope you enjoyed it enough to come back again. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You you can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net and follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Unrelated things. It's unrelated things.